Metaphorically, the tech security world tends to look over a cityscape and hones in on a few shiny skyscrapers, protects them, and declares victory. These big buildings represent the largest institutions, but oftentimes, all the interconnected infrastructure of smaller homes remains unprotected. The smaller homes, in this context, are the SMBs and other various organizations. Meet Sinan Aaron, the VP of Zero Trust Access at Barracuda. And today, he breaks down how security is interconnected across all institutions, regardless of size. It's not just about a couple of big bands and banks and financial institutions and DOD. It's not just those. There is a long tail, a very, very long tail of SMBs that is part of our day-to-day life, whether we might not see them firsthand, but that little supply chain vendor that supplies bolts or potatoes to DOD might actually be a beachhead for attackers to literally move into critical networks. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Sinan describes the current state of security attacks and how there is now a market for criminal behavior. Additionally, he explains that the way to secure SMBs is through services provided by MSPs rather than selling straight to SMBs. He also chats about the interesting way he began his security career. Enjoy this episode. Listen, we've had some of the team members from Barracuda before, and I know you have a specific responsibility with inside of Barracuda. So if you could, real quick, so our audience gets to know exactly what you do there, tell us a little about Barracuda and specifically, what does Zero Trust Access mean? And uh, of course, you're the VP of Zero Trust Access. Tell us what that means, what the division does. All right, sounds good, sure. Uh, you know, As you are familiar with Barracuda Networks, we are a, a well-established uh, leading player in cybersecurity with a comprehensive portfolio of, uh, you know, data security, network security, application security, and email security products, right? It's a it's a full stack of uh, security products under one trusted brand, right? A, a trusted partner, a vendor uh, that folks have been familiar with working over, over a decade. Specifically within that portfolio, what Zero Trust does is basically in this um, transformation of how we do work every day in and out, right? We work from various locations, especially during the pandemic. A lot of us were confined to our homes. We work remote. A lot of these, uh, you know, workers now also uh, globally dispersed, right? You know, the work used to take place within the four walls of a business, and you only need to worry about what is within that perimeter, right? You put the physical walls and the virtual walls, which were the firewalls, and everything that was inside was considered to be trusted. But now with, you know, with the things like remote work, uh, with pandemic being the catalyst for more and more remote work, now there's no such thing as a perimeter. There's no four walls as a building. There is no firewalls to guard around all their applications. You have a lot more applications are now pushing to the cloud, a lot more, even more applications going to SaaS. So everything is distributed, decentralized. So in a, in a world like this, in a new normal like that, where everything is transitioning away from the legacy data centers on-premises environments to the cloud, you needed new solutions. And and typically uh, this term, this hype around zero trust means that how can we secure employees and their access and their workloads and applications that they use every day in and out uh, in a decentralized and distributed world. So that's at the crux of it. And, you know, one of the things I like to think about or I'm more familiar with is there's so many companies now that are let's call them born in the cloud where 
from the very beginning, maybe they were built remote first from the very beginning, or they rely on cloud services. They never had a data center. They might not really quite understand why this is even important. Give us a framework for where you're coming from, because for those who don't conceptualize this, they might think, hey, well, I just use my internet. I go use my cloud services. You know, I'm using my Salesforce. I use my GitHub. I'm checking in code. My code goes to repo. It goes to AWS. All of these tools, Sinan, they already have security. I'm good to go. Like, I'm, I'm good over the public internet. Talk about when companies start identifying like, hey, this is not quite a great ecosystem to build a company within. They start needing more security features. There's a lot of truth to what you say, Albert. Actually, there's a lot of native security to those platforms, right? Whether you're talking about a SaaS application like GitHub, right? It has a lot of built-in security. You can enable MFA for the entire you know, developer body. If you're talking about AWS, they have a lot of native solutions, whether that those are, you know, network security solutions, you know, whatever you, they, they do offer native offerings. However, the problem, even for a cloud native business, let's say circa 2010, right? It's a fast growing startup. They started on AWS or Azure, whatever it is. They grow in fast. They're already distributed. They have employees from all over the world. Uh, you name it, right? What is the need here? The need is actually to be able to put guardrails across platforms, right? Even though the platforms offer some native offering, native solution for a lot of your security needs, how can you say that you can have one policy that spans across, you know, your cloud service provider like AWS versus your SaaS offerings like, you know, G Suite? How can you build a a cohesive security policy that spans across multiple different environments, right? There's a lot of walled gardens out there. And companies like us, we're now in the business of building guardrails around, around all these platforms that you can basically have one source of truth for all your cybersecurity policy that you can manage, maintain from a single dashboard, right? Essentially, that control plane will span across all your uh, workflows, whether those are cloud ones, SaaS applications, or some legacy components. We, we offer you essentially these robust guardrails that span across solutions and platforms. I think that's the real benefit for security vendors. Yeah, it makes total sense. It gives you more comprehensive ecosystems. It's easier to do some of the things you mentioned, which is like bring on new people, make sure the same security policy is applicable no matter where they are, which we know. And then we've also heard really crazy stories. We see it in the news, of course, by the time it gets to the news, it's too late because you've already failed. Uh, But the, uh, the severity of attacks now and the nature of attacks. One of the things that we see is that these attackers, it used to be we used to be afraid of, hey, there's going to be let's say a bad actor, they're going to copy my information and possibly compromise me directly from my information. Now we're seeing like all kinds of crazy types of attacks. Some of them are just, they want to collect it all and withhold it from you so that you have to pay to get it back. Others are actively preventing processes. Others are just holding and besieging data or wanting to out you. And then others, we've seen crazy actors, they go in and they try to emulate something that's real. It's like the new type of phishing scam where they collect serious sensitive information and maybe They figure out a way to mirror someone in accounting, to tell someone else in accounting to change the account number for a vendor. They make a payment and all of a sudden it's gone. The hacker didn't steal anything. They were able to copy what you were and emulate that. These attacks we know are on the rise, which makes your solutions more important. What are like the things, I guess, that companies come to you now they're most worried about? Because it does seem there's more and more attackers all the time. It seems like they're becoming even more stealth in regards to like, they're not dropping like a virus or something like we used to think of like things like virus or malware, like, oh, they dropped a program. We can find the program and get rid of it. 
But like some of these people are just like watching. They're like watching forever. And I don't know what they're watching for, but there's like no trace, almost no trace that they're even in your system or limited trace. Give us an idea of what like the marketplace is concerned about and how you guys are approaching how these new attackers are coming into the fold. Fair point. I mean, it's correct. You're spot on. The imperative word that you mentioned, marketplace, uh, referring to the vendors, right? The cybersecurity uh, ecosystem. But there is also a marketplace now on the attacker side, right? Hmm. If you look at uh, all these successful ransomware campaigns, there is a whole supply chain behind these attacks, right? They don't do all of it themselves, right? They do have a, you know, a, a group of folks that will, for example, just will be in the business of uh, collecting, harvesting credentials, right? They will run phishing campaigns. They will run water hauling attacks, you name it. They will just collect basically entry points, the beachheads for, for these operators, ransomware operators to run their campaigns, right? Then there will be operators in the dark web where they will send PII information in bulk, right? They have a large and complex ecosystem on their side. Therefore, uh, no one party does everything, right? They were, they're easily able to just go out and acquire vectors, right? They're like, hey, uh, you know, there's a VPN credentials that was harvested by this, you know, contractor to DOD. This is crazy. Why don't we go and use that VPN credentials to establish a beachhead? And once that happens, they invite another operator to deploy ransomware, right? And then once that's happened, that's just actually the tip of the iceberg because now the proceeds needs to be turned into, you know, basically washed. They need to like launder uh, the proceeds. So what happens to those cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, they get they get mulled uh, and then translated into payment cards and cash. And, you know, there are there are a bunch of other ecosystem partners that will basically help these criminals to monetize uh, their, their gains. Right. So it's a very large, complex ecosystem. They are innovative. Uh, you touched on, you know, uh, business email compromise where you will just, you know, uh, compromise an inbox from that inbox. Uh, you gain Basically, you insert yourself into a chain of trust mm -hmm. where you can continue an existing conversation. You can change a couple numbers on an in invoice. The thing is, the, the opportunities for them are endless uh, and, and they're innovative uh, around that uh, because they found a clever way to monetize, right? Um, being able to move money around has become simpler. Untraceable rewards, uh, unfortunately, has become part of the boom in the ransomware operators, right? So, so, you know, we talk about all the upside of cryptocurrencies, decentralization, you name it. But the major downside, of course, being that it, it was able to really get uh, ransomware become a very lucrative uh, line of business that a lot of people are, you know, contracting it out now. There's, there's you know, a large complex ecosystem that operates these uh, rings. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like you can the way you describe it reminds me of like a episode of John Wick or something like someone can just go into an organization order mm -hmm. <laughs> order a hack like it doesn't I need information on this company because I want this done so zero trust has been a philosophy for a while the idea that no one should be trusted everything has to be some type of credential or encryption key in order to communicate with any other endpoint it's been around for a while I'm sure it's evolved quite a bit and if I ask a couple different people about their philosophies on zero trust, I'm sure they'll all give me a different answer. Yeah. When you think about, <laughs> you know, it's almost become like a marketing term. It's like, hey, we're digital insights. Like, uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> when you approach zero trust, how do you think of this concept? Because for those listening that are maybe unfamiliar with this term, maybe you're listening to IT Visioners for the first time, give us a little background on zero trust, where it like started from, how you got more involved in it. And like, of course, your, your philosophy for developing security and products for a zero trust concept. 
Yeah, happy to. I mean, it's a misnomer at this point. You're right. Uh, unfortunately, the hype kind of did some disservice to zero trust. What it uh, what it entails at the at the core, right? I like I like this simple analogy. I think it explains zero trust, uh, you know, architecture and philosophy very in a very concise manner. Is is basically heading out to uh, an airport terminal and trying to get access to your gates, right? Mm-hmm. And it tells you also about this concept of authentication versus authorization. And what, what are these things mean, right? So this is essentially zero trust in everyday practice. You go to your terminal, uh, you have a boarding pass and you have a driver license or some sort of passport or some identity, uh, essentially a card with you that you show at the gates before you're at the security checkpoint to TSA, you show your identity. That's the authentication piece, right? Mm-hmm. You are who say you are. They look at your ID. But that's not enough because are you authorized to cross the security line to the gate? Well, how do you get authorized? First of all, is it the right date for your flight? Are you in the right terminal? And is your gate behind the security line, right? They look at yeah. your identity. They, they authenticate you. But the next thing is you're going to need to get authorized, which is basically looking at your boarding pass and see if everything checks out, right? So that's the kind of the first two things that is your trust does. But you don't stop there. The second thing, you put your carry-on, Right through the security scanner, which basically is a zero trust, you know, cybersecurity, the network security concept is posture analysis. Uh, yeah. What it means is that, you know, is, are, you know, are you conforming? Like, are you carrying anything explosive? Do you have any sharp objects in your suitcase? So that is basically the posture assessment. That's the contextual awareness that we have as part of zero trust. We authenticate you, we authorize you, meaning do you have access to that gate? Do you have access to the application? Are you in the right organizational unit? Are you in the right user group to have access to this particular app or data? But once we do that, at the same time, we have to verify your posture, which is basically your carry-on going through the X-ray scanner at the TSA line. That's the same thing as a posture analysis. So I think it maps very well to the zero trust concept. Authenticate, check your ID, authorize, check your uh, boarding pass, let your carry-on through the, through the uh, X-ray scanner, basically do a posture analysis on your device. Is your laptop conforming? Is it secure? Does it have all the updates? Does it run on EDR? Does it have uh, disk encryption if you're downloading data from a data storage, right? So all of these things are basically the posture analysis that corresponds well to a TSA uh, X-ray machine, right? Essentially, that's what Zero Trust is for me. Yeah, and for yourself, you know, you developed a technology that was originally called FIDE. It got acquired by Barracuda. It was in the same realm. Where does your technology or where does your expertise lie? Is it in like the network that's actually handling all the packets of information and trying to authorize, hey, are you authorized to have this packet? Are you not authorized to have this packet? Is it more software centric where it's in the computer and it's accessing after the packet receives to the computer? Like, are you allowed to have this and blocking it or authorizing it at that point? Or is it at the endpoint level? Is it at all three or more? (laughs) Give us an idea of where the application you've built sits. Right. So we would say that my team and I personally, we come from a, a more of an endpoint security background, right? So we are a platform specialist. The FIDE legacy goes to supporting like six different endpoints, you mm-hmm. know, from Chromebooks to Android to Linux desktop to PC Mac, you know, the, the whole the whole uh, platform game. So we are much more, I would say, endpoint driven in the sense that we do have interception capabilities directly on the endpoint, even on mobile devices, right? So it, for example, if an application is trying to connect to a resource in the cloud or on-prem, you know, we can trap that connection. We can authenticate, authorize, and then make sure that the traffic flows through the device to an identity aware proxy. And from the identity aware proxy, it goes to a SaaS application in the cloud or an application, you know, on your AWS uh, VPC or, or Azure VNet. So essentially it's somewhere that intersects between 
networking and operating system, uh, low-level operating system primitives. But we found that the sweet spot for us was to basically write something that is very flexible and adaptable. We could do any application with any protocol, whether that's TCP, UDP, mixed mode, whether it's some sort of a legacy voice over IP or something cloud native, something that's web application only, we don't differentiate. We're application agnostic because we took the approach to be at at a vantage point where we can intercept network traffic and connect it to wherever it needs to go, right? After we do authorization. There you go. And one of the things that people in security always talk about, which is a indirect conflict with a lot of times the business goals is businesses always want to move faster. And we know now like employee experience, they want their applications to be built up faster, build faster. You know, they don't want any slowdowns in the process. Was that a big priority that you guys put in place was like, Hey, how fast can it do these things? It seems like it has to be nowadays because nowadays no company is going to allow, even if your security was like iron vault, perfect, nothing gets through. It's like a part of business now today that's like, eh, but it's slow. So if it's slow, I don't yeah. want that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they, they don't want to sacrifice speed. It's a non-starter for a lot of companies now. Of course, of course. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, business <laughs> continuity trumps, uh, you know, and, and you, can't, you can't throw uh, roadblocks. Actually, finally, the mentality behind building security products are changing. Uh, it's more about like be out of sight, out of way. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And if you're going to need to throw a roadblock, be helpful. We call it, for example, remediation notification, remediation steps, right? So if you are denied access for a reason, whether you're not a part of the right user group or you you need to ask for some sort of a approval going through IT ticketing system, we try to automate that workflow for you, right? So we should, as a security solution, not just protect you from you know threats, but we should improve your day, day-to-day workflows, right? What it means is that if you need to access a database, can we make that approval process more simpler for you, right? Can we automate that whole ticketing system, approval system? Can we build an accounting system uh, that actually accelerates your, your work, not throws uh, roadblocks, right? Not slows it down. Or when it comes to networking, can we do smart things at the networking layer that we can deal with jitter and latency and, and help, you know, help you to actually have better connectivity, right? We have a SD-WAN solution uh, that does brilliant magic on the wire that actually your performance, your impression of your applications, whether they're on the cloud or, or in some VNet VPC somewhere, or whether on-premises, your interaction, your impression of the speed of these applications, their response time improves because you know there's a lot of networking knowledge that can now be pushed to the edge. And when you're working from home over your you know, sometimes not so reliable Wi-Fi connection, uh, we can help you do error correction. We can, you know, offload your traffic to different protocols that transport over, let's say, you know, something like UDP that then we do the accounting, we do the error correction for you. So suddenly you're like, oh, wow, my access experience has improved from a day ago, right? So security is going that direction. It's helping performance. It's helping productivity. It's uh, actually automating workflows. Not just like saying access denied, go away. That is a legacy. That's the old school method of doing things, which everybody hated for good reason. Listen, the uh, the one thing that work from home over the last two years really cemented is because my kids, of course, are still working with, you know, they're still in school and schools, they don't typically invest in the newest, best technology. I think that's fair to say across the board, across our country. And just the, for them accessing their virtual classrooms, it was like, 
they had some things that were on Google on like a Google Cloud service, like a, you know maybe they did use Google Meet for like classroom, so that was fine. But then other services were hosted in something else, and you could just tell. You could just tell it was on some antiquated architecture infrastructure because all of a sudden now you know you get the spinning wheels. We all remember those for those with the age. Some of us, some of us, when we had to work off VPNs and RSA tokens and things like that, just a couple maybe ten years ago. Accessing something remotely was like impossible. It was so painful that remote work wasn't even a consideration set. You know, you talk about this movement towards this concept of it's not only does it have to be more secure, it's got to be faster, it's got to provide better experience. Typically, in the past, bigger companies adopt this philosophy first and it does move its way down to smaller companies. But in an era of increasing risk and also in a time where we're more interconnected than ever, right? Like I always think of like automotive dealerships, right? Or automotive, like it's a big world. At the end point, there could be like a mom and pop dealership. Yeah. They just want run one business. All their tools got to connect to your tools. That's how they order their cars. That's how they're getting financing for their customers. It can be pretty substantial amount of sensitive information from an SMB to like a giant corporation. Talk about wh- what is that going to do to like, I guess, risk? Because if I'm a big automotive, and I'm just using automotive as an example, you might have better ones. I have to open all my critical data points to the to my dealers, right? And so like we think of our modern world, we're too, so interconnected. So if on one side, people are increasing security, but the other side, their partners aren't matching, what happens then? That's right. Actually, that's probably the greatest problem that we have uh, in, in, in cybersecurity today, because it's an underserved market. Every new startup that's just high flying or, you know, even later stage startups or, you know, new IPOs in cybersecurity, if you think about it, they all boast about how much of the Fortune 500 they penetrated, how much of the global 10,000 they work with. Sure, everybody likes uh, big ticket deals, right? Everybody wants to boast about their- On Wall Street, that's fantastic. (laughs) Exactly. Wall Street valuation, great story to tell. But how are you serving the communities that you live in, the country that you live in, you know, the nation uh, that you're, you're trying to secure, right? Uh, you know, we talked about uh, homeschooling, the EDU market, right? The state and local governments, the every, everyday life depends on them. They hold our critical information, you know, all our PII's owned by some educational institution, by some state or local government, right? They are part of the critical infrastructure. Actually, they're at the core of the critical infrastructure. It's not just about a couple of big bands and banks and financial institutions and DOD. It's not just those, Right. Uh, there is a long tail, a very, very long tail of SMBs that is part of our day-to-day life, whether we might not see them firsthand. But, you know, that little supply chain vendor that supplies bolts or potatoes to DOD might actually be a beachhead for attackers to literally move into critical networks, right? This is how they might establish the trust chain. Like they become person A at a small vendor that's part of the trusted supply chain, and therefore they slowly, laterally move from their own into, into the core, right? So that long tail of SMBs is something that we really need to secure. It's an underserved market because everybody's chasing big dollar items, but there's a lot of them, right? There's millions of SMBs out there. So it is, it is a viable market. It's actually a sensible thing for cybersecurity vendors to try to address working with partners, right? I don't think you can sell directly to SMBs. They have a million other things to worry about. They're not going to be able to buy a firewall or data protection suite and install it. They're not going to buy some cutting edge DLP solution or zero trust network access solution. They're just going to work with their partners uh, to get them on board. So I think there's a lot of responsibility on us 
to work with MSPs, now all becoming MSSPs, right? Every MSP aspires to be also providing security services. So they are MSP and MSSP rolled into one. All of these folks have hundreds, if not thousands of SMB customers, right? We need to work with them, enable them to address this long tail of cybersecurity risk that I know for a fact will in the long run impact us in a very big way if we don't get in front of it. I think it's one of those systemic risks that we're not addressing. What are the first steps that you think should be taken? Because I'm going to use my automotive example again, because one of my buddies has an independent car dealership. It's been in his family for a while. They sell a couple different models as well as used cars. To your point, they are an SMB. That's one location, but they handle critical information. Like if you were to go get a car from them, sensitive information is certainly exchanged. Like you said, they're not going to invest in this technology if it's A, they don't understand it, right? They don't, well, first of all, like no one invests in things they don't know or understand. So that's a fact, right? (laughs) So they have to, no one understands the problem. So who is going to help them learn this? Like, is it the vendors? Like, are you going to be the ones going in and teaching these guys what's to do? Will it be their suppliers? So like the banks coming to them and say, hey, listen, we're no longer going to originate loans for you unless you can transfer the protocol in this fashion. Anyone in retail is the same thing. They have to work through typically through a distributor to the manufacturer, some type of chain, as you suggested. Mm-hmm. Along the way, all these systems are interconnecting. Is it going to be like the big companies? Like, is Ford going to tell all its dealers, hey, you got to upgrade to this? Is it going to be Barracuda coming in saying, hey, you got to upgrade to all this? Who's going to teach these business operators the importance of this? Because you're right, it is important. But at the same time, nobody invests in things they don't know about. Like, that's, we just don't. <laughs> That's just not- <laughs> yeah. To be honest, it's they shouldn't need to learn any you know, other stuff, right? Yeah. They should stick to their core business, right? Even if you look at uh, our side of the equation, uh, you know, we do deal with business logic. We don't want to reinvent all the components. Like even as software developers, we don't need to know everything, right? We work with other SaaS and API-driven solutions that they will do all those scaffolding for us. We stick to our business logic. So guess what? I do want the small business to stick to their business. They don't need to learn security. You shouldn't be even thinking about it, right? Like to educate a SMB market. I think I think it's it's just not going to work, period, right? They're already understaffed on, in so many other places. They're trying to figure out digital marketing. There's so many other things to worry about and do and hire for. So definitely security is not going to be one of those concerns. So where, where does that take us? It's the MSPs, managed service providers, because they all work with one, right? Whether this is like wiring their offices and their dealerships to installing data backup and file sharing a, you know, uh, storage units, whatever it is, they, or maintaining their access points for their guests and for their employees, whatever it is, these, these MSPs are already bundled into these assemblies, right? Uh, you pay them a monthly retainer, they come and do everything IT for you. And guess what? Those are very good businesses, solid businesses, you know, they're expanding and they're looking for even more expansion through cybersecurity. They're trying to grow their customer base. They're trying to grow their revenue base. So we work with them as vendors. We work with MSPs to go and deploy robust cybersecurity solutions, improve the security posture of these SMBs for securing the entire supply chain of the United States, right? And I think the way to do that is not through regulation. I don't think that banks enforcing their feet to fire is not a very uh, reliable way of you know to, uh, getting to people to comply. Usually, they try to find workarounds. You know, when it's forced that way through, yeah. through regulation or yeah, right. arbitrary restrictions, right? So, I think incentives has always been the the right way to go, right? Can we incentivize the SMBs to work with their service providers, and how can we incentivize the service providers to offer more cybersecurity services? Is I think through uh, you know whether these could be rebate checks that the governments uh, could give or tax deductions. You know, we, we have 
many, many examples in the last, you know, 50 to 100 years of how we incentivize entire industries. Sure. By policy decisions, by policy action, right? Electric car industry, right? We're giving government rebates, greenhouse upgrades, green yeah. building. Um, so, like, exactly. for example, if you were to build a brand new construction and you use, use enough green material, you could get a tax rebate. This uh, concept is in existence, as you, as you suggested. Exactly. Yeah. And it's been working, right? Oh, I'll give you a sticker to use the carpool lane. That, that in itself is, a, <laughs> is intensifies a lot of people. Oh, yeah. yeah. HOV2, baby. Yeah, exactly. Like, it'll cut traffic down. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, you know, we know it works. So, we might incentivize SMBs. We might give them rebate checks to be only used for MSPs to purchase cybersecurity services. So, let's imagine I'm an MSP, but I'm not, let's say security hasn't been my principal domain, right? What should they be thinking about when in terms of prioritizing what to invest in first? Like if you were to recommend whether it's a small company, an MSP, like where should they start the investment? Because I always say this about tech. If you ask a thousand vendors, do you need their software? You're in trouble because you're going to have everything, right? And you don't necessarily need everything. Right. Where would you say they should start? I would say uh, the most important is always the fundamentals, the basics, right? So, so like good hygiene, right? Uh, getting your configuration in order for baseline networking, operating systems, you name it, but patch management, critical foundational work that you need to do. Uh, data, data protection, bad things will happen, disasters will hit, you know, uh, you might be operating in an area where there could be weather hazard, you know, like you, you just need to get the basics in place. But with that being said, you know, when, when you start looking at the basics, a lot of it can be covered just through foundational cybersecurity work, such as like enabling two-factor authentication, right? Like on all things and everything possible. Getting regular backup, like having a data recovery, uh, you know, disaster recovery, getting a patch management solution in place, typically through an RMM, right? Remote management and monitoring solution in place, which MSP, that's MSP's bread and butter, right? So those are the, the basics. Get your patch management in place, your posture analysis, your data security and recovery uh, practice in place. Then from there on, guess what? Vendors like Barracuda is now offering services that MSP, MSPs can package, right? Such as XTR. Again, XTR is, you know, like zero trust. It's yet another ev evolution of some other terminologies. It used to be MSSP, it become MDR, then it turned into XTR. Doesn't matter really what the acronym is today. The point is that we give security SOC services, right? As a service. So you can think of it as SOC as a service, right? Your appliances, your endpoint solutions, your network appliance generate all kinds of alerts, and they need to be triaged. They need to be, you know, they need to be reacted and resolved, right? So those services, companies like Barracuda provide that service, okay, to MSPs, which MSPs can then offer it to their customers. So we can actually, not just with solutions and platforms and software, we can also boost the MSP portfolio with services. We can help MSPs offer SOC as a service through, uh, through Barracuda, right? And enable that in their customer sites. So I, I think there's a lot of innovations, such as Barracuda. I mean, the whole industry is looking into more of a cybersecurity as a service approach, right? And they're working with their partners like MSPs to push it out to, uh, you know, the, the, even the SMB market itself. No, very, very cool. And for our audience to know a little bit more about you, so you have an interesting background. We, we looked you up. How did you get involved in the security side of things anyways? What made you choose this path? Because a lot of times when people are younger and they're, you know, starting to learn, obviously the world of tech is huge, right? It's huge. You could go and very much specialize in any domain and literally 
become a superstar developer, possibly start a company in that domain, right? There's product software, there's UX software, there's infrastructure, secure, there's everything, right? Where did you find your passion for security? Because it looks like we did a little homework on you. It looks like you've been in the security side of things for most of your career. That's right. Pretty much the entire career, I would say. Yeah, straight <laughs> yeah. out of college. Not even actually during college, I, I picked <laughs> up my first, first job. But uh, I'm going to date myself a little. This is like mid, mid to late 90s. There wasn't such a track uh, that you could go to, you know, computer science or whatever, double E or anything like that. And you could take it as a, as a you know, career track. It didn't exist. You had maybe a lesson on cryptography, maybe another lesson in, you know, network security, mainly about, you know, configuring firewalls and things like that. There wasn't such a dedicated field uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. What it was more exciting was happening actually on the hobbyist, or you can, you know, call it as the hacker circles, right? So that's, that's actually my background. I did start as a hobbyist. I was interested in reverse engineering. At the time, we call it Vundev or vulnerability development. Uh, we were looking into open source and you know closed source, uh, reversing bin- binaries and applications to find basically weaknesses and vulnerabilities from an appsec sense of the you know from an appsec point of view, right? So okay, you you know there's a new PHP suite. Can we find you know vulnerabilities in that web app? Or if there's like a very popular Linux uh, service, uh, can we find remote vulnerabilities in that? That was kind of the craze in the in the late 90s. We, we were really like at the, I would say, the genesis of uh, vulnerability development and finding new vectors to break applications. That, that was just a curiosity at the time. And it was uh, funny enough that it, it was actually like a, almost, I don't want to say underground. It's just somehow there's, it sounds murky. It's, it is really not. It's more like, <laughs> you know, like the, the B-boys and the graffiti scene, the graffiti yeah. scene, right? It was yeah, kind of yeah. like that, right? We were we were finding holes and vulnerabilities in, in, in software and we were sharing with each other. We were bragging about it. We were dissing each other or we were, you know, sending greets out as part of these findings. So long story short, I found a couple of uh, vulnerabilities in Linux operating system at it, it it his infancy back then. I forgot the dis- distro's name. I don't think it even exists today. Uh, and I sent it out to a mailing list, a popular mailing list called BugTrack, right? Uh, it was two weaknesses in, in the Linux operating system that let you elevate your privileges from a user to root, to, to, you know, to the most privileged oh, okay. yeah. account, right? So I started getting job uh, offers, like one from like uh, in, in Thailand, couple locally in the market. <laughs> like, that's how it all started, right? I was doing something completely different. My career trajectory was more aligned with my family has done traditionally and all that stuff. Suddenly, through this hobbyist, quote unquote, you know, hacker scene kind of uh, engagement, I found myself in the in the infancy of cybersecurity as a field, as a, as a, as a market. And yeah. it's been 20 plus years now, and uh, it's, it's been great. No, that's awesome. I love that story. Listen, if you had not published your work, obviously no one would have realized you had the skill. You might not have known you had the skill. 100%. And I, this is my advice to everybody that asks me, you know, oh, how do I break into just start publishing whatever you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. GitHub uh, did that to a great extent, right? Now, now there's a lot of folks just, just yeah, I mean, it, it become the norm. I'm not, I'm not saying something <laughs> groundbreaking here, right? Yeah. We, we found a lot of our employees, a lot of our key employees, one of them actually become our co-founder later down the road on just searching APIs on GitHub on things that we don't understand, finding some pet project and talking to the guy for months and then hiring him as the lead engineer because, you know, we were the, he was the only one using those APIs, you know, on some NVIDIA, CUDA programming language, whatever it is, right? We were able to find through GitHub. So it's critically important. I promise you there's, a, there's someone right now who learned, heard this podcast who's trying to recruit who did not think of that ah. first. I'm telling you right now, like, because when you think something's clearly obvious, there's always someone it's not obvious to. So 
give yourself a little bit more credit than that. Sinan, it was awesome having you on our show today. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Sinan, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you even better. You ready? Yes. Let's do it. All right. So we we looked you up on Twitter. We looked you up on LinkedIn. We tried to find fun factoids about everybody. Curious. We saw a little tweet about your families, and it sounds like they produce olive oil. Is that true? That is correct. Yes. Because you alluded to it a moment ago. Like, hey, my the family business. Is that the is that the family business that you guys have been in for a while or something? Yeah, food and chemical engineering. So I could have gone either direction. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. What makes a great olive oil? I mean, stick to regional varieties of, of, of olive and early harvest is critical. And I would say, of course, uh, if you are you know, doing organic, that's, of course, uh, improves the quality. There you go. Now, being from a family that produces olive oil, are you a foodie yourself? Do you like eating exotic things? Are you a foodie? Sure. Yeah, of course. I really enjoy cooking as well. What dish is uh, your best dish that you can make? Right now I'm working, uh, well, eggplant, anything eggplant-based. So whether that's an eggplant salad, an eggplant stew, uh, my specialty is in eggplant. A lot of my (laughs) friends will will attest to that. Uh, But I'm working on a a stew, a vegetable stew. It's it's actually a vegan dish, uh, if you think about it. I don't think the Greeks will think of that in in those terms, but a dish from Corfu. It's, uh, you can think of it as like uh, Greek ratatouille or something. That's that's what I've been uh, working on lately to improve. Well, listen, my, my wife put me on a plant-based diet recently because my, you know, my blood markers were not good. Uh, so I, yeah. I'm not really different. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm not different from, I think, a lot of guys over 40. You've been eating a certain way your whole life. All of a sudden, your body can't keep up. Time to clean that up. So I've been eating a very much plant-based diet. So I'm going to have to hit you up after this for that recipe. It looks like you were born in Turkey. Is that accurate? That is correct. Yes, I was born in Istanbul. There you go. Tell us a little bit about Turkey that maybe a lot of Americans don't know too much about. For example, if I were to go visit there, what would I see? Let's touch on the last subject, food. Uh, it's it's very, very strong. The cuisine is very strong. It's basically a amalgamation of many, many cultures, whether that's Greek, uh, whether that's Armenian, uh, Georgian from the Caucasus, uh, local, you know, Asia Minor, Anatolian cuisine is all very strong. So, yeah, that's going to be the first thing you're going to recognize. Uh, the, the cuisine is very, very strong. It's affordable. There's a lot of variety. You sit down. You know, maybe you might have been impressed with the Spanish tapas before in your life. Now you're going to be blown away. It's just going to be you know, <laughs> overwhelming amount of different tastes and uh, different dishes. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of variety. A Turkish breakfast, for example, is famous. They'll put like 40 different things, uh, kind of like uh, Korean appetizers, essentially. They will put like 40 different little small plates on the table just for breakfast. Oh, man. Now, see, now I got to get my blood under control just so I can go visit Istanbul to have this. <laughs> right. <laughs> What else do you like to do outside of work for fun to pass the time? What are your, some of your interests? It's right about time. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of winter sports, uh, skiing, snowboarding, anything on, on, on the mountain, snow or hiking in the mountains, you know, uh, snowshoe, whatever it is, like anything that high elevation. So I'm from the eastern side of Turkey uh, through my father's side and uh, they're high elevation folks, right? So we, we like mountains, mountaineering. So that, that's, that's a hobby of mine. Yeah. That is awesome. What level of ski or snowboarder are you? Are you doing black diamonds? Are you doing tricks in the air? Are you like me? I, I basically stick to like blues my cap. Like when I get to blues, I'm already like, I'm kind of nervous. 
Yeah, no, I, I can do uh, black diamonds, but regular, you know, regular skin or snowboarding, uh, you know, no, no tricks anymore. The, the spine doesn't handle it well anymore. You know, after 40, <laughs> you're not going to be pulling any tricks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can respect that. Sinan, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a lot about yourself, where a little bit about your culture, and of course, your insights into the world of zero trust security. I agree with you wholeheartedly. As this becomes more widely adopted at the enterprise level, the new vulnerability is now SMB. We're all interconnected. There is no way around it. If they are not secured, the enterprise won't be secured because that's how people are doing it now. They're coming in. They're looking for entry points. And we all know enterprises have open gateways with SMBs. There's just there's no other way to do business. So you got to secure it everywhere. That's exactly right. Yep, you got it. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. IT Visionaries.